the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul's disobedient pride reaches a peak and God sends Samuel to deliver a difficult message. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 1. The title of the message is, A Heart of Rebellion. First Samuel 15. And just to remind you, the theme of the book of First Samuel is lessons from the heart. We've looked at hearts that were right toward the Lord, hearts that were not right toward the Lord, as we've gone throughout our study, and we're going to look at another lesson from the heart. But to give some context to First Samuel 15, when Saul became king, God poured out his spirit upon him, and he turned Saul. The scripture says in First Samuel 10.6, he turned him into another man, a humble man who led with grace and with courage. But after Saul's failure to wait for Samuel at Gilgal and the subsequent mass desertions from his army, Saul changed again, but not because God changed him. Instead of confessing and repenting of his sin, Saul hardened his heart. And thus, after God delivers Israel from the Philistines, Saul makes a decision that he will do whatever it takes never to allow his reign to become vulnerable again. And so if you were to read the end of chapter 14, you would see that Saul solidifies his power by warring against any nation who could threaten his kingdom after that victory over the Philistines. He is no longer going to put himself in a position where he's vulnerable. And by the time we get to chapter 15, God is now going to remind Saul that his job as king is not to fight his own personal enemies, it's to deal with the Lord's enemies. And so... We'll see how Saul handles that reminder. So chapter 15, we begin in verse 1. It says, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken then unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. And spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Here we see God's instructions to Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. In verse 1, we find a refreshing notion here that the Lord speaks to Saul once again. God had not been speaking to Saul, if you remember up to this point. Every time Saul had sought the Lord, the Lord had just not answered. 
because of Saul's stubbornness and hard-heartedness and refusal to repent. But here Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. He reminds Saul that, Saul, you did not choose this position. I did. I put you here. And I put you in position to be king over my people, not your people, Saul, over Israel, those who are governed by God. This isn't your gig to do as you please. Your job isn't to secure your kingdom. Your job is to lead my people, the Lord tells him. And so after he pauses to let that sink in, he says, Now, therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Listen to the Lord's instructions. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is the first time we see God speak to Saul since he disobeyed at Gilgal. It is almost as if the Lord says, this is enough, Saul. Enough of the nonsense. It's interesting. God has done this a couple times in Scripture. I think the most memorable to me is what he did with Abraham after the whole Ishmael fiasco. Remember the whole Ishmael situation where the Lord came to Abraham and said, Abraham, you're going to have a son and your descendants are going to number the sand and the sea. And Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. And then shortly thereafter, after many years go by and God doesn't fulfill that promise, Sarai comes to Abram at the time. He wasn't Abraham yet. Abram and says, hey, why don't you marry my handmaid and have a child through her? And that's how God fulfills promise. Abraham goes, great idea, honey. Not a good idea. And for 13 years, God remained quiet. Did not say a word to Abraham. Until then, finally, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 happens. And it's very similar to this verse here, where it says, And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Enough's enough, Abraham. Enough's enough. And I think that's kind of what he's doing with Saul here. God's quietness toward us is an opportunity to draw near to him. It's not an opportunity to harden our heart or to assume he approves of my behavior. He's not saying anything. Don't wait for the two-by-four to get your attention, and don't harden your heart when he brings others who are pointing out the areas need to change. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens unto counsel is wise. And that's why we need church. It's why God gives us spouses. It's why God sometimes gives us kids. I remember some of the most awkward moments are those times when me and Bev were having an argument, and one of the kids would come up to either me or her and say, you know, Dad, or you know, Mom, the Lord says this. And inside you're thinking, go to your room. (laughs) But the truth is, they're right. And the Lord does that. He says, you know, get out of your own eyes, get out of your own view of things and allow other people to have input into your lives because we don't always see things correctly. We do see things foolishly at times. And if we're going to refuse correction, it says the fool will only look at what he sees and go, my opinion is the only one that, that's most important. Instead, a wise person receives correction, counsel, all throughout the Proverbs it tells us that. So what are God's instructions to get Saul back on track? Well, to do something that God had told Israel to do a long time ago. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. You may have forgotten, but I have not. How he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all. Remember here, I made a joke about how God didn't forget, but the word he remembered doesn't mean to remember in the way we think of it. It actually means to take inventory or to count something. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have taken inventory of that which Amalek did to Israel. 
In other words, I have a number of things that I have counted that Amalek has done to Israel. And he specifically mentions how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Who is Amalek? Well, Amalek is short for the Amalekites. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And if you remember, Esau and Jacob didn't exactly have the best relationship growing up and as young men. These were descendants of Esau, but they did not settle down in the land of Edom, the land where Esau settled down and spread out and became his own nation. The Amalekites became a tribe of raiding nomads who moved throughout the desert region south and east of Israel. And while we see in the scripture that Esau forgave Jacob, the Amalekites took up the grudge. The specific instance that the Lord mentions here is from Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, it mentions that as Israel had just come out of Egypt, they had recently just had the whole Red Sea experience, Exodus 17:8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, choose us out, men, and go fight. And so basically that's the battle where they held up Moses' arms, they were winning, and they didn't, and he was losing. And, but it mentions in verse 14 of Exodus 17, and the Lord said unto Moses, after they won, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. One of the names of God we have is because the Lord said, I am not done with Amalek. For he said, because the Lord has sworn. The phrase Jehovah Nissi means the Lord is my banner. The idea is he's the one that goes before us to war. And so he called that place where he built the altar, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner, because the Lord had sworn that the Lord would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, that's the story there. You think, okay, well, they fought with Israel. People fight all the time. But that's not the full story. We get the full story later on when Moses is about to die. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, here we see why God was so upset about this. In Deuteronomy 25, 17, Moses reminds the nation of Israel who would go into the land after he would die, that he would not be around to make sure that this happened. He says in Deuteronomy 25, 17, remember, he tells them, don't forget what Amalek did unto you by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt. How he met you by the way and he smote the hindmost of you. Even all that were feeble behind you when you were faint and weary and that he did not fear God. It's not just that the Amalekites attacked Israel. They were preying upon the weak, the elderly, those who were exhausted and tired. They were picking off the weakest elements of Israel like the raiders that they were. And so Moses reminds him, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives to you for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. When you're done conquering the promised land, it's interesting. God told Israel to conquer the promised land, but to exist in peace with all of their neighbors that were outside the land. He said, you don't need to go to war with any of them. Exist at peace with them, with one exception. Everyone except the Amalekites. He said, when you're done conquering the promised land, you go deal with the Amalekites for good. For two reasons. Because of how horrible they treated you, how they were picking off your weak and your elderly, your sick, those who were thirsty, those who were exhausted, and how they did not fear the Lord. What does that second part mean, that they did not fear the Lord? They didn't care what God thought is what that means. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is to hate evil. So uh, the best definition I've heard for 
fearing the Lord. It means to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. Good definition. The Amalekites had none of that. They didn't care what God loved and they didn't care what God hated. They were going to do what they wanted to do. So God commands Israel to wipe out the Amalekites because they would never stop seeking vengeance against Israel. They would never stop fighting. But Israel never got around to it. And so God reminds Saul that you're the leader now. It's your job to obey this command and to do it with no compromise. Verse three, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That phrase to utterly destroy, it means to devote to the ban. It's the same word that God used for Jericho. In other words, no spoils, no captives, everything and everyone is to be destroyed. Now, of course, when we read that, God's command to kill women and children, babies and animals, we can maybe understand. Some people are more comfortable with the idea of war, but the idea of commanding to kill women, children, babies and animals, to wipe everything out, that is a difficult thing to understand for many of us. They're innocent. I mean, the women and the children, the animals, the babies, I mean, what what are they going to do? They can't fight back. It seems wrong and it seems unjust. Well, I covered this in great detail when we got God's command to exterminate the Canaanites, but I'd like to go over it a little bit again. So a few thoughts I want to share with you on this. First off, I promise you this. God would have spared any and every Amalekite, man or woman, who would have repented instead of hardening their heart in opposition against Israel. If any of those people, if all of those people would have said, listen, we are wrong. We have taken up this vengeance against Israel. We have fought and fought and fought and fought and fought against Israel, but we're done. We realize we've done wrong. We want to repent. The Lord would have rescinded it. I promise you it. There is no way. And you say, how do you know that, Pastor Will? I know it because when they came into the promised land, God told them to wipe out all the Canaanites. And yet when Rahab the harlot repented, God spared her and her entire family. When the city of Gibeon feared the Lord, they were spared. And there were other groups that were spared as well. So I know God would do it because he's already done it in the past. The Canaanites, not a single point of them had to die, but they refused to repent. They continued to persist in their rebellion and their fight against God. The second thought I'd like to share with you is that Exodus 17 was not the last time that the Amalekites sought to wipe out the nation of Israel. The Amalekites joined the Moabite coalition who invaded Israel in Judges chapter 3. Deborah lists the Amalekites as part of the northern coalition who invaded Israel 80 years later in Judges 4 and 5. Then 40 years later, they came back with the Midianites to invade Israel again in Judges 6. And after defeating Israel in battle in Judges 6, they would come back, the Amalekites, year after year after year to burn the survivors' crops and to steal whatever livestock Israel managed to procure. Their plan, their only satisfaction would be with wiping Israel out completely. If there is one consistent theme of Israel's troubles during the time of the judges besides their own sin, it was the Amalekites. They were involved in almost every offensive against Israel. They were not open to any kind of peace with Israel and they would never stop trying to destroy Israel. Now, what do you do with someone like that? You can't do anything with someone like that. You can't reason with someone like that. God tried and tried and tried. It's interesting. There's a passage in Genesis where the Lord, when he talks about how Abraham, I'm giving you this land, but not yet because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. 
In other words, horrible things were going on with the Canaanites. Awful things were going on with the Canaanites. They were rebellious against the Lord. They were slaughtering each other. It was a horrible cultural situation. And the Lord gave them 400 years of reasoning with them, of pleading with them to change, to repent, to stop. And they wouldn't. At some point, God is not a good God if he doesn't do anything about that. And so the Lord says the same thing with Amalek here. They will not stop trying to wipe you out. You must deal with them. There is only one sin that God will not forgive. And it's the persistent refusal to respond to the conviction of God's spirit. If I persist in my stubbornness and my rebellion against God to my grave, the Lord's not going to go, oh, well, Jesus died for that. No, there is no forgiveness for that. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. If there is no repentance, if there is is no acknowledgement of my sin, if there's no turning to the Lord, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. That's why Jesus said all manner of sin against me can be forgiven. But if someone is going to slander the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit of bringing us to Christ, if you're going to slander that, you're going to know the truth, have it revealed to you, the Holy Spirit's opening your eyes to the gospel, and you're going to go, I know it's true, and I don't want it. What does God do at that point? There is no sacrifice that covers stubborn rebellion persistent to the end. When someone rejects everything that God reveals to be true because they just don't want to bend the knee, the only option left is judgment. And Scripture testifies that this was Amalek's attitude. They did not fear God. You might be saying, okay, I get that, but why the kids? I can understand anyone who's old enough to make that choice, but why the kids? They're not old enough to understand. True. But any survivors would be trained with the same mindset. Because are you going to leave the children in the desert without any adults to care for them? The obvious answer to that is no. <laughs> that would be a result in the same exact thing, but only prolong the suffering. So what are you going to do? If you leave any Amalekite adults there, they're going to train them with the same exact vengeance. The only way to end this is the same way that God ended the wickedness of man with the flood, and it's the same way that God will end the wickedness of man in the Great Tribulation. You have to entirely destroy those who will not bend the knee. That's the only option at that point. Now, when Saul hears this message from the Lord, he decides to listen, and so he gathers Israel's army for war. It's a good start, verse 4. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. That is a far cry from the 600-man army that Saul had when he fought the Philistines the last time. This is a man who has organized his nation. He has mobilized his nation for war. He has fought numerous wars, as we saw in chapter 14. This is a different nation that Saul is leading now than when he first became king. Now, Telaim is a city in southern Judah near the border with Edom, so it's nearby where the Amalekites are. And in verse 5, it says, And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and he laid wait. He set an ambush in the valley. However, he noticed something, that there were others in the city who were not Amalekites. Verse 6, And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart. Get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now, the Kenites are relatives of Moses' father-in-law. You remember when Moses had to flee Egypt because he killed the Egyptian, and he ended up marrying Jethro's daughter, and, and 
Jethro's people then met Israel when they came out in the Exodus. And Moses convinced Jethro and some of his relatives to come to the promised land with the nation of Israel. And so those who traveled with Israel to the promised land, they were given land in Judah. They lived in the promised land. Those who remained behind ended up settling down in the same area where the Amalekites lived. Now, that's interesting because that proves to us that the Amalekites could live peaceably with their neighbors. They just refused to do so with Israel. They could do it, but they refused to do so. And so we see here that Saul's not bloodthirsty in this war, in this campaign against Amalek. He gives opportunity for this other group of people to get to safety before he attacks. And so verse 7, we see that happens, and then he attacks. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until you come to Shur, that is, over against Egypt. Havilah is the Arabian desert area south of Israel. Shur is the desert region southwest of Israel and toward Egypt. So he drove them toward the sea and fought them, and it says that he won. Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse that they destroyed utterly. Despite Saul's effort against the Amalekites that he had this extended campaign, he does not follow through with God's commands. He spares Agag. Now, It was very common back then to keep foreign rulers prisoner so that you could parade them out to display your greatness at special events. For example, if your Sidonians were coming to visit, having a diplomatic whatever, you'd have a big feast and you'd make sure this guy was sitting at the table. And you'd be like, yeah, this is how we deal with our enemies. You were sending messages. And it was good to parade those things out because it made statements, clear statements, don't mess with us. And yet... That's not what God told him to do. In addition to this, it says he killed all the people with the edge of the sword, and yet he did not kill all the people with the edge of the sword because David ends up fighting the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 27, 8, and again in 1 Samuel 30, verse 1. Two decades is not enough time to rebuild an entire nation from just a few survivors, let alone make an army. So he did not kill all the people. And then thirdly, They took all these best of the livestock. Everything that was vile and refuse, that they killed. But they kept all the healthy animals, all the good stuff. Vile means that which is of little value. Refuse means that which is weak or unhealthy. Why do all this? Why spare Agag? Why not kill all the people like God said? Why take some of the spoils when God said not to? Well, Because Saul and the people thought this was a better solution to the problem. I know what God said, but God's way isn't the best way. We've got a better idea. Some of these people and possessions are useless, but others have benefits for us. Now, we tend to call that incomplete obedience or compromise. However, the Bible calls it something else. Outright rebellion. (laughs) It's outright rebellion against the Lord. And even though Samuel wasn't there to see it, God certainly was. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repents me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and cried unto the Lord all night. It's interesting. The Lord said that it repents me that I have set up Saul to be king. 
Numbers tells us that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. We think of repent as changing your mind. The word here does not mean that God changed his mind. It means to be in a state of sorrow over a person or event. God was heartbroken over Saul. I am heartbroken that I have set up Saul to be king. Why? For he is turned back from following me. The word there, turned back, he means he has turned around. He had been following me, but now he has turned around and he has decided to go his own way. And how does God know that? Because he has not performed my commandments. The word performed, it means to elevate, to cause something to have a high status. He has not put my commandments a high priority in his life. He has given them a low status. He has pushed them under rather than elevated them to a high importance. And can I say that God's heart is broken every time someone decides to give his commands a low status in their life so that they can do what they want to do instead? Every single time, every single time God's heart is broken. Now, we all fall short. It's why we need a savior. But this is talking about a mindset. What status do God's commands have in your life? What is your mindset? Are you truly following Jesus? Because there are times when Jesus tells me to go directions I don't want to go. He says, hey, I want you to forgive this person and next time you see him, Be nice to them. And I'm thinking, I don't want to see them again. Jesus often leads me in directions that lead to my own personal death. It'll be good, though. What status do God's commands in his word have in my life? This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.